invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts is right after the four gospel books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But last week we traveled over 200 miles, some by ship and some by foot with Paul and Barnabas as they left Antioch and Syria and sailed out onto the Mediterranean Sea and over to the island of Cyprus where they encountered some Jewish God-fearers in the synagogues and began to open up the scriptures and share the word of God with them before then having an opportunity to share with the most important political leader on the entire island, a man by the name of Sergius Paulus. And this Roman governor on the island of Cyprus became the first recorded convert on Paul's first missionary journey. And as we looked at that biblical account, we, we said that as we go out like Paul and Barnabas and share the message of salvation in Christ, that the Spirit of God goes with us and guides us, working through us, as we spread the urgent message of salvation in Christ. And this morning, as we continue in that journey, we get to look at just what was Paul and Barnabas's strategy for presenting the gospel. What method did they use to share the truth of hope and salvation and forgiveness and justification and restoration through Christ? Did they present the Romans road? Maybe the ABCs of accepting Christ or, or maybe the grace acrostic that we used just a few weeks ago in our foundation series on Sunday nights. Or maybe they just gathered a bunch of peace with God tracks and put them in their potato gun and launched them high in the sky hoping that they would land in the laps of people that were hungry to hear the truth. Or did they put their white button-up shirts on and dark ties and go from house to house hoping that someone would, would invite them in to hear a message. Now that hopefully you're awake and semi-interested, let's look at just what they did from Acts chapter 13. But Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13, which is where we left off last week. From Paphos... Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Poseidon Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. And because this is a fairly lengthy passage of scripture that we have for this morning. We're going to divide it up into several sections in verses 13 through 15 being that first section. But I want us to see three gospel truths from this passage. Three gospel truths from the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And verses 13 through 15 from which I just read are really just background information uh, to what we're going to hear and how we're going to hear Paul present the gospel in Poseidon Antioch. And so what we have here is, is pre-information, context information to where Paul and Barnabas 
have been, where they're going, and what they're going to do. So they've been on Cyprus, this island. And they've gone from the east coast of Cyprus all the way to the west coast. And, and then they have departed from the island's capital city, Paphos. And they've sailed north to where they enter into Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And as you can see from the map on the screen behind us, here is a, a trace of where they have been. They have left Antioch in Syria here, sailed across the Mediterranean, gone across the island of Cyprus, and now they've gone northward. And they've landed in Perga of Pamphylia, in the region of Pamphylia. And we're told that when they got there, we, we, don't, we don't have much information about what they did in Perga. In fact, we're only told that in Perga, John, also known as John Mark, leaves them and goes back to Jerusalem. We're not told why, but they leave Perga and they, they go on to, to the other Antioch. Not Antioch in Syria from which they departed, but Poseidon Antioch. And just as they did in, in Cyprus, they made their way to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. And began to worship with the Jews there and other God-fearing Gentiles. Now, Jews would gather at the synagogue on the Sabbath for a worship service, much like we do on Sunday, where there would be prayers and reading of Scripture and a sermon. And the temple in Jerusalem, until its destruction, remained the, the central place of activity for religious Jews. It was the central place for the sacrificial worship and the uh, the religious feasts that, that were practiced and remembered throughout the year. But anywhere that a sizable Jewish community began to gather, a synagogue was built. These were smaller houses of worship that were presided over by one or two ruling elders, synagogue rulers. And we're told in verse 15 that, that after the reading from the law and the prophets, they read the scripture, the synagogue rulers sent word to Paul and Barnabas that were there visiting with them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Now, we don't know what led these particular rulers to ask Paul and Barnabas to share a word. We don't know if maybe their attire signified that they were devout Jews, or, or maybe it was because they were guests they were visiting that they were invited to share a word to the people there in Antioch. And I promise you, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're not going to ask you to share a word today. But whatever the earthly circumstance that led these particular rulers to, to ask Paul and Barnabas to, to share a word of encouragement, I'm going with the fact that it was the Holy Spirit of God that prompted them. Because this was the opportunity that they had been waiting for, just like an athlete that's waiting on the sidelines to get in the game. I don't know how many of you caught the ending of the Texas A&M Ole Miss game last night. But it came down to the last minute, as it often does in a good football game. 38-38. Texas A&M has the ball, and they come just far enough down the field that they're able to kick a field goal or to attempt a field goal at the last minute of the game. Now, those that are the kickers, the field goal kickers, or the extra point kickers in a football game are, are usually young men that 
that don't spend a whole lot of time on the field during the game. But they are of primary importance to the success of the team. And so you know that that young man, Josh Lambeau is his name. And I wouldn't know, and you probably wouldn't either, uh, if you didn't catch that ending or look up the results afterward. But you know he was waiting, eagerly waiting for that opportunity. Yeah, he was nervous, I'm sure. He was anxious. But you knew he was waiting for the opportunity to kick the game-winning And in the same way, God was working through these circumstances to give Paul and Barnabas the opportunity to share the truth. It was God working behind the scenes. Yeah, Paul and Barnabas went to the synagogue, but it was was the Holy Spirit of God, no doubt, that prompted them and gave them the opportunity to speak the truth and share the truth with these religious people. So let's pick up in verse 16. And the first gospel truth that I want us to see this morning is that the gospel is rooted in God's faithfulness to his people. The gospel is rooted in God's faithfulness to his people. Now, as we read through this section, I want you to listen for how God provides for his people throughout history, how he was faithful to them and provided for them time and time again. But picking up in verse 16 of Acts chapter 13, so So Paul and Barnabas have been invited to get up and speak. And this is where we pick up verse 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse. A man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Verse 23. From this man's descendants, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And what we have here in in these several verses is a snapshot view of Israel's history, of of how God has dealt with his people throughout their history, being faithful to them time and time again, providing for them time and time again, despite their disobedience and unfaithfulness to him. Because God had called a people and set them apart as his people. Verse 17. And he had given them prosperity during their time in Egypt as slaves. And and he had led them out of slavery in Egypt. In verse 18, he had put up with them time and time again, caring for them, providing for them despite their disobedience. And he had even removed other pagan nations, enemies of his people, seven surrounding nations, verse 19, out of the land that he had beforehand decided to give them as his people. And after this, he gave them judges to, to rule that they would have direction and order. And when they asked for a king, verse 21, he gave them a king, Saul, before then giving 
them a better and greater king, King David. He had provided for them time and time again. God had been faithful to his people, faithful to his promises. It sort of reminds me of the talk that parents often give children when children show a certain level of disrespect for their parents. It's like a mother talking to her her teenage daughter who might have a bit of an attitude, not saying that all teenagers do, but her teenage daughter might have had a bit of an attitude. It's like her mother saying, Girl, do you realize I carried you around for nine months inside of me before then carrying you around for another two years or so as you put on pound after pound because I provided for you, I fed you, I cared for you, I bought you nice things, I bought you toys, I bought you clothes, I gave you an education and a vacation and on and on and on and on. And the reality is that In that moment, no matter how upset you are with your mom or your parent, you have to kind of acknowledge, okay, okay, you're right. You cared for me. You provided for me even beyond what I deserved. In the same way, God has provided and cared for his people over and over and over and over again. And he will continue to do so because he is a faithful God. And in verse 23 Paul gets sort of to the the heart of what he's trying to say here. He gets to the heart of his message. From this man's descendants, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, why is that such a big deal? And it's a big deal because way back in Genesis chapter 12, God had promised something to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples or all nations on earth will be blessed through you. And we know in hindsight, reading the scriptures, that was promised there, the blessing that was promised there to all peoples of the earth would come through the offspring of Abraham. Now skip forward about a thousand years. And God speaks to King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. Sound familiar? But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established Forever. And last time, skip forward about another thousand years to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile 
to Christ. Church, Jesus Christ is that offspring. He is the offspring that was promised over 2,000 years prior to a man named Abraham, that through his seed all peoples of the earth would be blessed. And he is the son that would come from the line of David that, that would reign forever, that would be a son of God and that would rule. His kingdom would never end. And God is faithful to the promises that he had made and he had promised, he had planned far beforehand to send a Messiah king through whom all peoples of the earth would be blessed. This was the culmination of God's plan of redemptive history. This was the picture that everything else pointed to. This was the the arrival of a king that, that all of his dealings with his people foreshadowed. This is just like being in a popular restaurant on a busy night and perhaps when you've been at Destin or Sandestin, when you're at Destin Commons or the outlet malls at Sandestin the week of the 4th of July, and I know a lot of you have been there during that time, and like 10% of the U.S. population has packed up and gone to a city that has one main street, but yet because your vacation is not going to be complete if you don't go to Hard Rock or, or wherever else, you go there that Friday night and you wait and they tell you it's going to be a two-hour wait, but you get your little buzzer thing. You think, that's ah, not that big of a deal. There's shops all around. We can go from place to place and wait till it's our turn to be seated. And so you do that. And finally, the kids are complaining. You're exhausted. You're starving. And your buzzer goes off like a fire alarm in your hands. And, and you get to go and sit down at a table and enjoy a, an ice-cold glass of sweet tea or Coke or whatever. And get your order of onion rings and buy your t-shirt and all that good stuff. But that's what you've been waiting for. And on a much grander scale, this is what the people of God who, who knew the scriptures were waiting for. They were waiting for the unfolding of God's plan, the unfolding of a Messiah, of a, of a Savior who would bless all peoples of the, of the earth. And because God is faithful, he, he brought that about. The gospel is rooted in God's faithfulness to his people. And God is worthy of our praise and our adoration and our thanksgiving because of his faithfulness. If God was not faithful, there would be no gospel. If God was not a faithful God, there would be no good news for us. But because he is a faithful God, his promises come true. And he sends his son, Jesus Christ gospel is rooted in God's faithfulness to his people. Truth number two, the provision of Christ is the heart of the gospel. The provision of Christ is the heart of the gospel. Look with me now at Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 26. And I want you to listen for how Paul, this one presenting the gospel, hones in like a laser beam on Jesus Christ. Verse 26, brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. 
When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Verse 32, we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not decay. Now, in the previous section, Paul has just traced God's history of dealing with his people. Roughly 2,000 years of history in a few short verses. And now, all of a sudden, he can't move move past Jesus. He talks about the resurrected Jesus over and over and over again, verse after verse after verse, as a culmination, as a fulfillment of what he has previously stated is, is Israel's history. Do you think that Paul had a gospel of Christ-centered understanding of this book? You better believe he did. And we ought to as well. Every time that we open Scripture, whether we're in Genesis or Revelation or halfway in between, we ought to be asking, what does this passage, what does this verse, what does this, this book say about Jesus Christ? Just yesterday morning, my daughter, Kinsley, was playing in in the house and she pulled a a Bible that we have sitting on a table off and put it on the floor and she began to to turn through the pages of it and she said, Daddy, I'm going to read the Bible to you. And as she turned through some of the pages in the front, I don't think she had made it past some of the introductory pages of the Bible. I said, well, thanks, Kenzie. What does it say? And she said, it says Jesus says Jesus. Now, although that's a a somewhat simplistic view of the Bible, as you would expect from a two-year-old, there's a lot of truth in that statement. Because everything we read in the Bible either points to Jesus, is a picture of Jesus, is fulfilled in Jesus, or is the result of what God has done for his people through Jesus. And so when we read scripture, we want to look for Jesus. We want to see Jesus Because that is the heart of the gospel. It's what God has done for his people. That he's crucified his own son, Jesus Christ. The sinless Christ, verse 28. And he was laid in the tomb, verse 29. But yet God raised him from the dead, verse 30. And all this was in accordance with the scriptures, verse 27. And we know it to be true because... There were witnesses who saw it in the life of the early church, verse 31. That is the heart of the gospel. King David, as great as he was, he stayed dead. He died and his body decayed. But the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the eternal word of God, God in the flesh, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, does not, cannot, and will not have a tombstone because he lives and reigns forever. He is the eternal 
God in the flesh. And when we share the gospel, when we spread this message with with those around us, that's the truth that we proclaim. Christ Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected from the dead in accordance with the scripture. You don't have to know a fancy formula as great as some of those may be. You don't even know how have to know how to smoothly transition into a religious conversation with somebody. But in order to accurately and rightly and biblically spread the gospel, you do have to speak of the crucifixion of Christ and the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ on behalf of his people. The provision of Christ is the heart of the gospel. Truth number three. Everyone who believes the gospel will experience forgiveness and justification. Everyone who believes the gospel will experience forgiveness and justification. Third and final section, verses 38 through 41 of Acts chapter 13. Paul gets to the conclusion of his message. And he says in verse 38, Therefore, my brothers... I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. In other words, I didn't say all this beforehand just for the sake of saying it. I said it because I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Verse 39, through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. You see, apart from Jesus, there's only one way to be right in the sight of God. And that is to never sin in the first place. To never have a selfish thought, to never lie, to never cheat, to never think of yourself more highly than you ought, to to never have a lustful thought, to never disobey a parent or other authority figure, to never wish harm on someone else, and to always take every opportunity to do good and right. And the reality is, none of us have lived up to that standard. In fact, I dare say that not a single one of us has lived up to that standard for a single day of our existence on this earth, much less an entire lifetime. Except one. And that's the one that was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And he is the one that Scripture tells us that that knew no sin, but God made him sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. There's a transaction that takes place for believers through Jesus that does not take place any other way. The law couldn't do it, which is what we're told right here at the end of Acts chapter 13. The law wasn't wasn't given to accomplish that person. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, 
read that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we read about that same truth, that that because of sin, God had established this sacrificial system in order to, to atone for sins and ultimately to point to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we read in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, about these priests that would offer these sacrifices day after day after day after day, and ultimately they didn't make anyone right before God until the great high priest, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, appeared and laid down his life. And he was the ultimate and final sacrifice that provided forgiveness and justification for all to where no other sacrifice was needed except belief in Him. The law revealed our sin. It revealed our shortcomings. It revealed that none of us are good enough, that none of us could measure up to the standard. And the sacrifices that were then instituted only pointed, foreshadowed, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the Bible tells us that all who believe in Him will have eternal life. And this is why Paul ends this message with an invitation and a warning. He says, take care or watch out that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. Forgiveness of sins and justification before God which is being declared righteous before God acquitted of guilt cleared of guilt in the eyes of God is available to everyone who believes but only those who believe John chapter 3 verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life Romans chapter 1 verse 16 for I am not ashamed of the gospel Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Everyone who believes the gospel will experience forgiveness, justification before God. The gospel is rooted in God's faithfulness to his people. The provision of Christ is the heart of the gospel. And everyone who believes will experience forgiveness and justification before God. The faithfulness of God led to the provision of Christ, resulting in forgiveness and justification for all who believe. The faithfulness of God led to the provision of Christ, resulting in forgiveness and justification for all who believe. So have you believed in Jesus? Have you believed the gospel. I'm not asking if you've repeated a prayer after someone else. I'm not asking if you've been in church all your life. I'm asking if you have believed in Christ. According to Billy Graham and a whole host of, of other pastors and Bible scholars in recent years, there are a great number of people, a tremendous number of people that sit in church week after week 
that don't know Christ. And the sad reality is most of them, no doubt, believe that they do. I'm not asking if you know about Jesus. There's a difference in knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. I'm not asking if if you believe in a Jesus, but I'm asking if you believe in Jesus as the Savior and the Lord to which this book testifies. And who do you know that doesn't know that Jesus? Who do you know that hasn't believed in that Jesus? And who can you share that message of salvation and forgiveness and justification through Christ with in your sphere of influence? Who can you befriend in order to share that message of hope with? The faithfulness of God led to the provision of Christ resulting in forgiveness and justification for all who believe. But but how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them and how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news church let's be bearers of this good news of forgiveness and hope and restoration and salvation and justification before the perfect and holy and just God to all people that is what we are called to do that is the task of the church to go and to proclaim this message to all people so that they would hear and so that some would believe. Many won't believe, but some will. And none will believe without someone going to share the message of hope with them. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for another opportunity to gather with your people and to sing praises to you and to hear from your word. And Lord, to focus our attention on you. And Lord, I pray that that's what's taken place this morning, that it hasn't been about any individual or any group or any performance or anything other than exalting the name of Christ and hearing from you, Lord. And I pray that, that your word stays on our mind. That I pray that you captivate us with the love that you've shown us because you're a faithful God. And Lord, we, we thank you that, that you remain the same that your character doesn't change, that you're faithful to your promises. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful as your children to you. Lord, I pray that we would desire to know you and love you more and more and, and to share your truth, your love with others, your gospel. Lord, I pray that you'd move among us now or that we would respond as you lead us and that you'd be glorified in us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.